This podcast is funded and supported by Wild Common, an additive-free agave spirits company bringing you some of the finest tequila and mezcal on earth. Our goal is to help give transparency to the consumer, provide a cleaner spirit, and support sustainable methods of production with the families that we work with in Mexico. Our product should be available summer 2020. We will keep you posted. Salud. Welcome to another episode of the Wild Common Podcast. I'm Andy Barden, the host, except for this particular episode where I become the guest and we have a guest host, Rick Stovall from Stovall Studios and the host of the Visual Revolutionary Podcast reached out to me saying that he wanted to interview me and uh, we have a good conversation. We end up diving a bunch into my background as a professional photographer, how I got to where I am in my career. And he also starts asking a bunch of questions about Wild Common. And so I figured there was some overlap and I would publish it here as well. I talk about how the whole project got going, a trip I took down to Mexico, some serendipity that occurred along the way, and uh, sort of my background with Agave Spirits. And we also get to talk a bit about uh, the partners that I'm working with, the Rosales family, as well as uh, some of the sustainability issues that are encountered in the Agave Spirits industry. You can check out Rick's work at stovallstudio.com, spelled S-T-O-V-A-L-L studio.com, or you can go to the podcast, which is visualrevolutionary.com. So please enjoy this guest podcast where Rick is the host, I'm the guest, on the Visual Revolutionary Podcast. Enjoy. Oh, uno. What is going on? Here we are. Another episode of the Visual Revolutionary Podcast. Another week in quarantine. I don't know about you guys. It's getting a little old, but I'm doing okay. I'm hanging in there. You know, I'm ready to see my friends. Throw some shakas, give some hugs. But I know we'll get on the other side of this. We're all trying to do what we can do. And I feel very fortunate to have this podcast where I get to have some social interaction still. Have long conversations. If you're tuning in for the first time, it's a podcast where I get to sit down with some of my favorite photographers, filmmakers, and other visual artists, hear about the journey that shaped them into the person they are today and how they established their career. Go to visualrevolutionary.com for all your information. You can send me emails there. Donate to the show there if you want. Help me pay for that studio I signed a lease on and can't go to right now. <laughs> but mostly, make sure you're tuning in wherever you listen to your podcast. If you got a little extra time, leave a review and follow along on Instagram and Facebook at Visual Revolutionary. It's a good place to keep Keep up with the show, when they release, who's on them. I think that's it. This week on the show, Andy Barden joins me. When I had Sophia Jaramillo on not very long ago, she mentioned his name and I was like, yeah, Andy, I know his work. I love what he does. I should reach out to him. And he ended up being a great person to talk to during this COVID-19 thing because he's got a positive attitude, definitely chooses to see the good in things, to not get too attached to outcomes. And so it was nice to have a gentle reminder of some of that positivity. For those of you not familiar with Andy's story, he's done beautiful work for everyone from National Geographic to the North Face. He's got his own podcast now, Wild Common. As always, links to all of this are in the show notes, so make sure to check him out. And he's even releasing his own tequila, which I was 
very fascinated with, so we talk tequila for a while. We talk spirits, because the dude's a hustler, and he continues to evolve and grow, and I'm fascinated by that. We all need motivation in life. This show is my big motivator sometimes, and Andy didn't let me down providing that. So thank you, Andy. All right, that's a good place to leave it. Hope you enjoy it. Here's my conversation with Andy Barton. Andy Barden, welcome to the podcast, man. Thanks for doing it. Thanks, Rick. How you doing, brother? I'm doing all right. Why don't we start with the obvious? How you holding up? How are things going for you? Things are uh, well. Things are going well, actually. So I've got a uh, secure housing situation in a beautiful location with somebody that I care about and, uh, you know, access to food and, you know, those basic needs are met. And so I think that constitutes as um, being more fortunate than many. Totally, totally agree. You know, and so just trying to uh, keep things in perspective. See the positive in it. You know, I'm trying yeah. to do the same. I mean, you know, obviously there's there's setbacks, but I definitely, I know that I rank in the fortunate to uh, to meet a lot of the same criteria that you just rambled off, you know. And much like you, I live in the mountains, so I remind my son of that all the time. He's a teenager, you know, he gets antsy. He wants to go out and hang with all his homies. But I'm like, dude, you got it so good, man. You just ride your mountain bike out the door. It's pretty endless for all the people locked down in the cities right now. It's Yeah, and I mean, summer's coming for him. And so he's got um, a myriad of, of outdoor options for him. I've got, you know, a number of friends in Brooklyn and, and San Francisco. And it sounds rough. Yeah, that's like true quarantine. You know? Los Angeles as well. Yeah, totally. I was kind of, you know, thinking about starting off with, um, with wild common and then we'll back up, get into your, your, your history and everything. But, uh, congrats on wild common, not only the podcast, man, but it sounds like a pretty cool business opportunity you got coming online here real soon. Or I don't know if you're being held up with the tequila side of things, but, um, yeah, just talk about all of that. I'm, I'm curious about the tequila for sure. And then I, I want to talk about, you know, what got you going with the podcast as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, they're, they're related. Um, of course, you know, I think a podcast is a way to, um, create awareness about what you're doing to have conversations, to reinforce, reinforce brand values. And for me, selfishly, it's a way to also talk to a lot of people, um, that I've always wanted to talk with and, uh, go a little bit deeper than just the cocktail party conversations that you have. Um, you know, when you see friends in passing or at industry events or, or gatherings, things like that. I just spoke with a friend of mine, Aaron Treeb, who spent a bunch of time over in Afghanistan and Iraq. And, you know, we spoke for an hour, um, about her experiences over there. And generally when I see her, it's at a friend's gathering in DC and, it's a crowded house and, you know, everybody's having cocktails. And, and so you get these little micro meetings with people. But um, so selfishly, it's a way to scratch my own itch and talk to people that, um, you know, I think are amazing doing cool things in the world and having impact and uh, creating some awareness for them. So that, that's sort of the impetus there. Um, the Spirits Company is another endeavor in and of itself. You know, as you know, I've worked as a photographer for years, over a decade, and um, that has been predicated on me being able to go to some of these locations, um, that other people can't access, whether it's the side of Mount Everest or under the waves of Tahiti. Um, I've, I've relied on some physical ability, uh, climbing related specifically to, to get a lot of the work that I've gotten. Right. And, uh, a couple years ago I was injured, um, I injured my lower back. I'm 38 years old now. And, 
I just like wasn't healing and I had to turn down a number of jobs. Um, one large commercial job in British Columbia, another, um, sort of expedition style job in Alaska. Um, and I, I quickly recognized that my, um, income was tied to my fitness and my physical ability and that wouldn't last forever. Right. Um, and just so, your ability to be there. A hundred percent. Yeah. And, and there's other stories to be told. Don't get me wrong. Um, in terms of like photojournalism and, and other avenues that photographers and creatives, um, can work, but, um, it, it was just a real sort of like, Hey, you should probably diversify and think about other ways, um, to also generate some income. And so, so, so that, that's where the seed was planted to just start thinking of other business ideas as well. Um, and then as I got injured, my body needed a reset. I had to take a break, um, from anything that caused inflammation in my system. Um, so that includes hard physical activity that includes, um, inflammatory foods, alcohol, um, you know, ensuring that I was getting proper rest and recovery and, and treating my body the way it needed to be treated right. um, to, to fully heal from this injury, uh, which was like some herniated discs in my lower back. And so after six months of really disciplined um, exercise and diet and no alcohol, no caffeine, um, I started to reintroduce spirits and beers and was really acutely aware of how they made me feel. And if I had uh, a glass of wine or two, I'd wake up in the middle of the night, like wide awake if I had a couple of beers, I would kind of feel like sluggish and inflamed and just sort of felt uh, poor and then found agave spirits. And um, they for sure allowed me to like feel the best and have a drink or two with friends and hang out and be social and not um, feel poor the next day. And there's a number of biological reasons uh, for that, which is it gets geeky. I don't have to dive into all of that unless you care. But um, so then it was like, all right, well, uh Who's doing this without additives? Who's doing this organically? Who's doing this transparently? Right. And there are some companies, but they're hard to find. Um, and so my girlfriend and I took a trip down to Mexico to sort of explore uh, Oaxaca, visit some friends who were down there. And then I went to Jalisco on my own to just look for um, sustainability within this industry. And um that was supposed to also be a part of a story that's now on hold because of the COVID-19 thing for a major magazine. Um, hopefully I get to revisit that. But, uh, so that, that led me to meeting a bunch of really, really cool players doing great things, uh, protecting the environment, um, trying to work. Um, there isn't a fair trade, um, organization that certifies tequila, but these folks are trying to get that in place, trying to preserve, um, uh, the local pollinators, bats in particular, right? Um, which are catching kind of a bad rap right now. But yeah, so that was sort of my introduction to the spirit. When you went there and, um, you know, to do the story, was that, was it strictly still out of just curiosity about the spirit or did like... Fully, no, I was okay. scratching my own itch. Plus, yeah. So you weren't uh, already thinking like, maybe this is a business opportunity. No. Okay. No. Yeah. It was like, this isn't, you know, I'm still a photographer. Sure. And looking yeah. For other things to do. And then... um and then it just sort of grew into like this thing that I couldn't shake. And I was like, well, I'm a visual storyteller. Um, I can communicate brand values. I can do things in sustainable ways and, and honor the tradition that has happened for years and years and years. Um, and so I was just started to explore a little bit more. And then 
you know, similar to our backgrounds um, in the creative world, you need to sort of take that first step um, of believing that you can actually do it. Yeah. Um, to then start creating some work to then get the ball rolling. And, and so I just reached out to a couple of folks in the industry and um, found a guy who um, had worked in the agave spirits world before and um, gauge sort of like the reality of it and this and that. And he'd also had positive social impact uh, within communities down there building orphanages and um, creating scholarships and doing all sorts of cool things and recognizing that you can create a business um, that isn't evil, that helps people along the way, that also builds schools and orphanages and employs dozens of people. Um, and that has been surprisingly quite a creative process uh, that I kind of poo-pooed as a photographer or as a creative beforehand um, that I'm now finding to be really, really cool and really rewarding. Oh, I'm sure. Man, there's so much in there that I kind of want to talk about because, look, I'm, you know, I'm a little older than you and I'm, I have also like, I've had those moments in, in my career has been good to me. And I've been one of the fortunate ones in the sense of just making a living for a while and, and being comfortable off being a creative. And I love that. And I don't want that to go away. However, at the same time, I always think like, how do you not only diversify, but how do you put yourself in a, a situation sometimes to have like some kind of passive income? Cause that's what we get trapped in as creatives. A lot is it all depends on our physical being, <laughs> you know, unless you, unless you create some studio where you have a bunch of secondary shooters. Um, and I started even going down that path for a little bit. Um, and it just, I didn't like the feel of it. And I had trouble selling a lot of my clients on the idea of someone else coming instead of me. Right. So, Rick's not, Rick's not here. And yeah. You're like, well, yeah. But we're hiring Rick. Yeah, and you're totally. like, yeah. But these guys are good. They're like, no, we don't want yeah, that. No, that's, that doesn't work for us. So I do love that idea of like, how do you, like you said, use your talents because I think we, not all of us, but I think a lot of us have uh, good ideas when it comes to marketing and obviously creative visual marketing. And so you have something to bring to the table as a creative a lot uh, across the board, whether it's marketing, packaging, how to, how to get the word out, you have a good platform. And so how do you take those skills and then maybe find a way to supplement your income? And I'm not trying to, you know, make it all about money here. Yeah, no, no. But it is a reality mm -hmm. um, that you do need to make a living. And the jobs that I've shot that were the most meaningful um, paid the least. And so, so, yeah, right. You know, then the jobs that paid the most were the least meaningful because it's just like straight up commercial work. Um, and so after a number of years working, um, not just doing sort of photojournalism type storytelling, but working as a commercial photographer and then a director, um, that became, um, not repetitive or mundane, but it definitely became like kind of meaningless to some degree where you're like selling uh, electronic equipment for large right. international corporations or whatever it may be. And so this is a way that I can um, make income in a way that helps people in a sustainable way and creates jobs and then go shoot stories that I really care about that pay nothing. Yeah. Like I'm self-employing myself, hiring myself to go shoot jobs or stories and either raise awareness about conservation issues that need to be talked about or um, communities that don't have a voice. Like all of those things are ultra important to me and they need to be funded and funding is hard to find. 
Um, so if I can self-fund those projects, like that to me is sort of the ultimate win of like, great, you don't have to make money. It's simply a piece that stands alone to, to honor those people or create awareness or whatever it may be. Totally, totally agree with it. And it's something that comes up on the on the show a lot. And it's funny because I used to be a little more of a purist in the sense of like, Hey man, either go all in or, you know, like shit or get off the pot here. (laughs) Yeah, no, you definitely do have to go all in. I think for like, you know, a decade to sure cut your teeth to figure out what the hell you're doing. Um, you know, there, there isn't like a, I'm just going to do it a little bit cause you're going to suck. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it does take a, a commitment of years, which we've put in. Yeah. I, and you have done that and you obviously have put in your time and worked with, you know, some of the biggest editorial names and brands in, in, in the world. But at the same time, I just think, I think we have come into an interesting era in photography and, and filmmaking for that matter, where you do see more and more very talented, what we would have called hobbyists back in the day, you know, and they book job. you know, like I've had some of them on the show where you're like, Oh wow. You know, those are not only jobs, like they're big jobs and they also have some other form of income. They've gotten some of those jobs by using income from the other job to create all this personal work that has, you know, gotten them attention. And, you know, most of them have giant Instagram feeds and I think that's where it really feeds them from, but it it has raised more curiosity in me to go, I wonder if that's the future we're heading more to is like, yes, you're a professional creative and you're also this, this, and this, if you really want to have some success. Yeah. Or if you want to go tell stories about certain issues and raise awareness, I think, um, you, you've developed skills, leadership skills, being on set, either as a director or photographer going through creative treatments, you can also put those skills to use to serve others in ways that aren't just your photography business. Right. Um, I think a lot of times, at least other creatives are tied into, um, not their self-worth being tied to their success, but their definition of who they are is wrapped up in a story that they're telling themselves about maybe only being able to be one thing or something. For sure. Um, and I guess I just don't believe that that's the case and that you now have a skill set that you've honed over 10 or 15 years and you're going to be able to pick up a camera in two years and still do it. So what's the harm in doing something else as well? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I totally agree. I think we're, I mean, I personally know that I've been guilty of that plenty of times in my life where you're maybe clinging on too much of your, your self-worth being tied tied in not only to like, Hey, I'm a photographer. It's what I do as a profession, but even like, Hey, I'm a photographer. It's what I do as a profession. And I make lots of money, (laughs) you know, like, well, or like, (laughs) and I'm deeply interested in this new thing that I'm exploring. It's super fulfilling. That's the beauty. Yeah. Like that's cool. (laughs) That's cool. (laughs) You get to remain remain a student because like, I can tell you on the 14th commercial photo shoot you go on, yeah, it's still super stressful. Yes, there's problem solving. Yes, it's still rewarding. But at some point, it's like, you know, it's another rodeo and you're kind of like, all right, this isn't as interesting as it was. And so I think, you know, following your curiosity, I think, is is the gist I'm getting at. Um, Absolutely. Whether that's in the spirits world because you feel better or 
starting a school or whatever, playing the violin doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I've found, um, and there was an interesting national geographic article. Um, I think it was like two years ago, Matthew Paley, Corey Richards, and a couple other guys. Oh, and Gutenfelder. It was on happiness. Uh -huh. And, and one of the core takeaways from the story and the literature and the research and all these cultures that they visited was having something that you're working towards as like a skill that you're developing and it doesn't really matter what it is. Totally. Just that you're like refining it. And for me for years that was photography and mm -hmm. still is sure. Um, but I get less of a reward rolling around in the grass shooting backlit images of um, like grass or flowers on film than 10 years ago when I thought that was the shit and it was super cool. Like I've evolved. Right. Surprise, surprise. And so, um, I've just sort of been following those curiosities. Yeah. I love that. I'm a big proponent of that myself as far as like, I'm always trying to add in things in my life that not only is it new and I'm curious about like, but I'm not good at, I like being a beginner at a, at a lot of things, probably to a fault. Cause I'm constantly, I spread myself thin sometimes, but I think what I also realized from doing this show in all honesty is like, I too got to that place where after a while, because it was all commercial work, I was getting a little, I was getting bored, even though I like what I do and I like what I shoot, I was getting bored and I wasn't getting fulfilled. And so I started turning into all these hobbies, but then after doing this show for a while and, and having these conversations and hearing about all the different personal projects that people fund themselves and lose money on a lot of times, you know, because they believe in them. And like you said, they're, they're scratching a true itch of like passion and curiosity. It made me go, Oh, that's, that's actually where the boredom came from. You know, like I got caught up in just exactly, the, the yeah. business of photography and I forgot to just do the stuff I loved in the middle of it. And it really, it was a big reset for me of just realizing like I had become that guy, you know? Well, and I, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, part of that too is challenging yourself um, with self assignments that take you out of your own comfort zone. And I did a workshop at the, uh, Palm Springs Photo Festival a couple of years ago with Frank Ockenfels III. Mm -hmm. And Frank is like this master of original imagery, like one of ones. Yeah, he's amazing. And so he'll use these like <clears throat> four by five cameras or eight by 10 field cameras, handheld um, or expired film, or he'll manipulate um, his images with mirrors or crystals and or print something off, tear it in half, and then rephotograph it. Um, and he's all about just like playing and making it creative and not judging the process. And if it goes in the trash can, it goes in the trash can. And that was really liberating um, to just be exposed to that approach and then to absorb some of that and bring it onto my photo shoots. Um, because I think I, I got in more of the commercial mode of like the perfection and storyboarding things and mood boarding things out and it took away from some of the serendipity and the creativity that originally got me into this in the first place mm -hmm. uh, and so i mean huge shout out to to frank for for re-injecting that like just go play attitude into it um and i think that shows in his work it's not shot on a sony a7 but with like the newest megapixel thing like right you know because it's expired film even if you reshot that exact same frame it would look different right and right. so um 
I really dig that about his work. I think it's really cool. Yeah. Real quick, going back to the tequila before I jump into your, your bio, I'm curious, as far as like agave goes, is that, you know, because you kind of through the years, you've heard about like the sustainability of agave and, and kind of the reason a lot of these um, tequila companies, it's like, you know, when you really look at the percentage of agave that goes into it, you're like, oh, wow, that's not, I don't know that much about it as far as like how it's farmed. Is that something you can talk about? Is yeah, that, yeah, oh, yeah, for okay, sure. hundred cool. percent. Yeah. No. So like, uh, like in regards to sustainability, there are carrying capacities, mm-hmm. uh, with, you know, any crop, um, and in order for tequila to be produced, um, the plant needs to grow a minimum of, of six years, and it'll shoot off these little sort of uh, flowering buds that come up around it. Um, and those can be harvested and replanted. Um, and the, the lack of biodiversity, because it's, it's a monoculture crop, right. um, means that if um, farmers don't allow their plants to grow to six years or eight years even, uh, where a stalk will shoot up called a quixote mm-hmm. and flower and bloom, then they're preventing um, biodiversity, basically evolution from occurring. And so it's harder for the plant to adapt to uh, climate change, essentially. They're, they're halting its evolution. Um, and so a lot of the, the bigger brands um, will use additives and sugars and flavors to make every single bottle taste exactly the same. Um, and that actually isn't sustainable, right? And so they'll harvest these plants when they're really young, which is a problem, which right. prevents the pollinators like bats and bees from having a food source. Um, they're, they're halting genetic biodiversity um, and, and basically just pumping out bulk product. And so I went out in search of these additive-free products that are 100% agave. There's no additives in them. Um, it's, it's just blue Weber agave mm-hmm. that gets cooked in an oven. It gets um, smashed by... Uh, a mechanical device that extracts all the juice and then that juice gets fermented and voila, you've got 100% tequila. Um, and that isn't the bulk of the brands available. Um, and unfortunately there isn't a whole ton of transparency in the industry. Um, and so it's hard to know as a consumer without geeking out a little bit. And so part of the incentive for me to, um, be involved was to be able to storytell that to the consumer in a way that was really clear in English, um, that allows them to, to understand what they're buying and what they're putting into their bodies. Right. And so then did you go in and like partner with a pre-existing agave farmers or like, how did that even work? How did you yeah, really so, form that relationship? I guess. Well, so I went down, um, to do this research on sustainability within the industry. And, right. um, that led me to reach out to some of the leading experts, um, within the industry, again, that story is on hold due to the whole COVID thing now. Um, but along the way, I met a number of families that have distilleries um, that operate in a very sustainable way and are fully transparent about what they put in it and where the agaves come from and how old they are and when they were planted and when they were replanted and uh, allowing a portion of um, the plants to stay in the ground and go to flower so the pollinators can do their thing. Um and so I reached out to to one of the families, um, uh, the Rosales family, just west of Guadalajara in a little city called El Arenal. And their great, or sorry, their grandfather started the distillery in the early 1900s. 
and then their father took it over and now it's uh, onto the third generation, the sons. And I reached out to them and told them what I'm telling you. Be like, well, here's my story. And mm-hmm. uh, I think there's an ability to communicate this. And I want to involve you in that story, um, you know, and, and talk about all these things that Westerners don't really have any idea um, about. And they were down. So away we went. Yeah. How cool, man. Yeah. Well, I look forward to seeing more of that. I'm sure like visually you got some stuff you're looking forward to releasing. Yeah. And it's just such a rich visual culture. Totally. Period. You know, like, Mm -hmm. um, it's so cool. You know, the landscape, the people, the traditions, the cities, the colors, um, it's, it's amazing. It's really cool. So yeah, just the history of it travels on hold for the moment. Um, but I, I have a number of images that will roll out over time on social and, um, you know, we'll have our website and everything up soon. So, well, and I know I've, I've heard you say that you're gone all in on, on surfing these days. So it gives you an excuse that your business is based around some, probably some good surf. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's the hardest sport I've ever tried. And it's, yeah, it's very humbling. <laughs> it's got my heart, man. I, uh-huh. I absolutely love it. Yeah, man. It's one of those, I've, you know, I've gone across all the board sports growing up, but that one, I just can't. I'm such a, you know, and I've been on plenty of surf trips and I'm still such a kook, but I do love yeah, it. You just got to put in the time. Yeah. All right. Let's jump into your history. Where do you, I couldn't figure out like where exactly, I, I know you're a, a Northeastern kid, but like where, yeah. where in the Northeast yeah, up, did you grow up? Um, in Northern Jersey, just outside of New York city. Okay. Um, spent my childhood running around in the woods, climbing trees and barefoot and, you know, um, just always had a pull to be in the mountains and to be out West, uh, from really early on. Why, you, why do you think that's so the, like the pull to the mountains Were your parents oh, like I, outdoors people or, uh, I mean a, a bit, but mm-hmm. it was more to like take the family camping. Right. Uh, it wasn't to go climb peaks or to, to do anything like that. Um, but yeah, it was just always, you know, curious to explore the natural world, whether it was, you know, crawling through the sand dunes as a baby or, or swimming in the ocean or running around in the woods in Northern Jersey. Um, it it was just always, uh, a humbling, appealing place for me to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I did okay in school, but I was always staring out the window and I would, you know, just prefer to be outside. Um, I was always visually stimulated as a kid in hindsight um, with whether it was bottle cap collections or comic books um, or just a collection of magazines that I would cut out and put on my wall. There was always like a visual hierarchy and I was always just visual and huh. uh, and didn't really tap back into that until sort of like college with a camera. But in those high school years, like what really piqued your attention then? Besides, I mean, you say you just an outdoors kid. Did you play sports? Did you? Yeah, you know, like yeah, played played sports. Uh, ran like cross country. Played lacrosse, and uh, you know there isn't a whole ton of like high quality um, surf or skiing in New Jersey. So I would travel and do those things a couple times a year if I could, but. Uh, just sort of had wanderlust early to go out to the bigger mountains of, you know, Colorado, Wyoming, California, or, um, in the case of surfing, obviously wanting to go to, you know, the world-class destinations of California and Hawaii and all these other places. Um, and so I did, I applied to school, um, in Colorado and went to school in Fort Collins, Colorado. Um, and 
that gave me sort of immediate access to the mountains. Yeah. What did you study? I sort of pinged around a bit. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I knew, um, like I, I just followed my curiosity about human psychology, culture, and human behavior. And so that that was anthropology, psychology, and sociology. Right on. Uh, so the social sciences, which yeah. was great because I suck at math. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and like those, you know, I've had a few people on this show that have studied anthropology and, you, and it just completely makes sense, you know, like completely. Yeah, no, those, those were just like, I, I can study the culture of India and I can learn about um, the psychology of um, of human beings. And like, to me, those were just things, like I didn't need to work to study them. Mm-hmm. I just could sit down and read the books because I was interested in them. And so that was a good fit. Did being at college like click with you though? Or did you, were you a little more pulled to the mountains since you finally got there and like, here you are in Colorado? No, I mean, there's, there's a responsibility and, you know, I, I took it as such to, um, to study and do well in school. Otherwise you're not going to be able to stay put. Um, but from Fort Collins, you know, you can, um, I didn't have a car, you know, so I, at the time would just ride my bike up West to Horsetooth Reservoir sure. uh, with a pair of rock climbing shoes and I could go bouldering and rock climbing. And, um, you know, you could bike or run or in the wintertime drive, um, an hour West with friends who had cars and we'd go snowboarding in the backcountry or whatever. Um, so I, I was able to have that initial, um, access and that, that quick fix to the outdoors. So it, it was a good natural fit for me. Um, and then about halfway through, school i picked up a film camera um a rebel uh yeah just a canon rebel 35 sure. millimeter with like a kit lens on it mm-hmm. and a bunch of film and uh found myself just really enjoying the creative process of of making like the making of things was really rewarding um i think it was like my senior year of high school i was supposed to be studying for a history exam and it was the night before and i found myself in the basement of the library surrounded by like uh you know how life magazine used to put out their like photos of the year like things yeah yeah um or like time magazine would do the same thing i totally. like i just had like stacks of them from like the 70s and 80s and there's all these pivotal moments that are captured um on film and immortalized and um i'm just like surrounded by photography books and i was able to be like whoa maybe i'm like studying the wrong thing here. I'm not directing my focus in the right direction. Um, and, but, but that's when I started to realize that, you know, photography was really something that, um, I was curious about and, and it just sort of grew from there. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the growth. Cause I, you know, I know that you also put in your time just as like a, a mountain guy, you know, like you, you were a guide, you, you were construction, you did a lot of different jobs, which I respect cause I did too, <laughs> you know, and like, and so sometimes I have people on this show and I think it's great that they like, they found it so early and they thought this is what I'm going to do. And like, boom, man, it was full, full steam ahead on photography and, um, I don't know how much I relate to that because I did, I did always love it. And I, but it took me a, a while, you know, to like, so I'm curious on like how that development happened with you, you know, like you found that kit, you know, you, you're sitting there with all these magazines and all the like kind of best of issues of the, like the photo annuals, 
you know, from there, did it just pique your curiosity in the art form of photography or did you really think like, this is something I could do? No, I didn't think it was something I could do. And that was a mistake right? that I learned later on. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wrongly thought it was something that I couldn't do. And right. that di- dictated the outcome of me not doing it. More on that in a second. Um, I graduated from school and um, needed work. And so I applied for a job while I was still a senior to work in Yosemite National Park um, and got, you know, an acceptance letter in the mail. And, you know, so that was super cool. So I packed up all my shit and moved to Yosemite to work there. Um, So that that allowed me to um, I was working at night. Well, first I started as a housekeeper changing sheets Uh and and then we'd go rock climbing after work and climb on weekends. Um, and then I graduated after their, like whatever it is, 90 day period of taking schlep jobs, uh, to, to working as a bartender slash bar back. So I could then climb during the day and work at night. Um, and photography was just a way to document my adventures and share them with friends and family and have memories. And this was sort of as like, the digital transition was happening. Totally. Um, where digital cameras were expensive, but they still weren't that good. And so, so still shooting a lot of film. I was shooting on Holgas, um, which were amazing. And I still think they're amazing. Yeah. I still love them. Oh dude, you get those photos back. And <laughs> yeah. It's just like <laughs> uh-huh. dreamy and crazy. Light and, leaks everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, uh, and so then I moved to Jackson hole for the winter to work as a bartender. Um, and, and then I went back and forth like that for a couple of years, Yosemite in the summers and Jackson in the winters and was just, you know, snapping photos. Um, and then had a very clear decision moment. Like I shot a couple images that were pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was actually able to submit some to, um, an outdoor gear manufacturer and they purchased one for 500 bucks. And for me as like a, somebody who was changing sheets or waiting tables. That was like total yeah. score. You know? uh, yeah. Totally. <laughs> like pay, pay your months rent. You're stoked. Uh, but I set out climbing one night by myself up this big long route and the sun was going down and there was a very clear like detachment of paying attention to anything. Like I'm just climbing similar to, um, you get to a point running where you're just like looking at the trail in front of you and you're just, just spacing out. And I had this very clear, um, recognition that I was going to, um, try to become a photographer and apply myself and, and start to believe that that was possible and felt like that would then dictate the success of that path. And that was, that was correct. Um, I often reference a quote by Rodney Mullen. The I, know, I, know, I love this quote. I also yeah. love this quote. So when I heard you say it a couple times, I was like, oh, that's cool. I love that quote. But yes. say it. You say it. Yeah. So he was making up all these tricks back in the day that nobody had ever done before. Casper slides and variable heel slides. And, and he was naming them um, as he was going. And he often would say that the greatest obstacle to creativity is your own barrier of disbelief. Mm-hmm. And that to me like really sunk in. And I recognized that I had then uh, sealed my own fate by saying, oh, this isn't for me. This is for, you know, Corey Richards or Jimmy Chan or these other guys who are now my friends. Um, The second you flip the switch and say, well, no, this is also for me and I can do this if I apply myself. Um, And starting to believe that you can do it is like 
that's the ticket. Yeah. And then working, then working your ass off. Um, but that's the initial ticket that you need to, you need to have that. I mean, I totally agree. I've said it a couple of times on this show. I think for me personally, like, I don't know where the self-belief came in, but like, I was like naive enough. I, I really like credit a lot of my early, you know, uh, connections with clients and stuff to just my own naivety of thinking that I was good. And I, you know, in hindsight, I wasn't, <laughs> but like I, I went in with a level of confidence, but like for you, where do you think you were able to then pull that confidence from, you know, to really believe in the fact of like, okay, you know, I, I can do this. Well, cause there were, I think there were building blocks. Like at that moment it was sunset. I was alone, like a thousand feet off the Valley floor in Yosemite, uh, climbing a crack where if you fall, you die. And two years earlier, I would have been shitting my pants or I wouldn't have been there. Right. And so I had these micro successes and lots of failures and learned that my own perception of what was doable was actually wrong. So like the first time I tried to climb El Capitan, we bailed, um, and I didn't succeed. And, and then I came back and I tried it again and I also failed. And then I came back and I tried it again and I succeeded and then again and I succeeded. And so then you do it, you know, five times and all of a sudden you're like, whoa, like I was way off. Like this is doable. This isn't a fluke. Mm-hmm. Like then you go do it in a day. And, and you're like, I never thought three years ago that I would be able to climb the nose of El Capitan in a day. And, and that those successes and failures, I think were the teachers for me that my own perceptions of what I could and couldn't do were, were actually off. And that if somebody else was succeeding and they're doing it similar to my failures climbing, well, why can't you, you can, you just have to apply yourself and try and work and learn and blah, 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 everything else. Um, and I'm applying that same mentality to starting this own business, uh, or this new business, you know, where I'm actually going up against like large international corporations yeah, with, uh-huh. with a ton of money, which I don't have. Um, but I'm just doing it the way that I believe it should be done, which is, you know, transparently with my partners, um, you know, applauding their tradition and their family and respecting their history, um, in the industry and, and just going about it with sort of a no bullshit approach. Um, and so far it appears that that is, is going to work. I believe that it will work. Yeah. You have come to terms with the mindset that it takes. And it's just such, because so many people philosophically, they know what you're saying, but there's a difference then of like really putting it to the test. I've had so many, like so many people now from the skateboard world on this show. And then also from the climbing world. And there is something, you know, I played a lot of team sports, but I also, I grew up in the skateboard world. I also ran, I've done a lot of like snowboarding, all of all these like solo pursuits that it does. There's something about it that, like you said, when you break it down, there's not, I mean, you have your friends there obviously kind of pushing you sometimes, but there's not just like a coach or a team pushing you to this final destination. It really becomes a barrier of, like you said, your own belief system of, after that failure going, 
bullshit. I can do this. I know I can and go and yeah, continue to do it. I think that that, uh, the, the failure component and being accepting of it as part of the process mm-hmm. is the other huge component. Absolutely. And, and when people will come ask for advice in the photography world, um, they're looking for like some hack or quick fix or something. <laughs> um, or even when you were saying before that you want to create this like passive income thing. Like, I think that that idea is like sold that people just have talents or that you can create this passive income that just comes in. Like, I actually don't know anybody that has that. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like uh-huh. all of my friends who are photographers or creatives, like work their asses off. And Absolutely. all of my friends who are financially successful, have also worked their asses off and they continue to. Um, so I think you need to be like conscious of uh, enjoying the process and be accepting of failure and learning from your mistakes. Right. Yeah. And just to be clear, when I say passive income, I think I don't mean passive is the wrong word. You're right about that because there, it does, there's the grind still exists. I think when you're, I, yeah. when I, I say I it, I mean like for, a di- diversified income stream that yeah. doesn't require Rick to be present. Be me standing there, you know, Correct. I'm still working yeah. my ass off, but like sometimes yeah. there's checks coming in because someone else that I've also been working my ass off with is helping those checks come in. But like you've started a company that does something else or right. something. Yeah. And, and it isn't predicated on the service component, which, which we were in. I don't right. know what's going to happen now. Yeah, but I don't want to take away from your point because it is a ver- it's a valid point and I think you're right in that sense of like in all honesty like one of the biggest reasons of me starting this show besides my own selfish desire to have conversations with people that I like and respect and and friends with on some of them was to also just share some of people's failures some of people's constant questioning of whether they deserve to be there or not. Cause we all face it. And I just, I've always felt like it's important for people to hear, like get used to failing because without it, there is no success. You know, like I've always been a, a firm believer and sure every once in a while you might get lucky and you, you win that first attempt, but for the most part, just, you know, get used to, I just don't know anyone that has, that's I, all. I don't either. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know anybody who like came out of the womb and was just like a killer photographer or painter or creative. Just, I don't think it's the case. You're looking at him, man. No, I'm, just, <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. I'm failing my way forward to this day, but I exactly. continue to, you know, do it. Well, going back to your story. So you're doing that solo climb, you know, you kind of have that realization, I guess, take it from there as far as like. You know, you got that for, you sold the first $500 photo. Yeah. So then, then it became about reaching out to, or for me, I, I didn't know where to start. So for me, like grabbing books, uh, whether it was Galen Rowell, who's this um, amazing landscape climbing photographer, um, in the sixties and seventies, he shot, um, a lot of old photos in Yosemite and then moved over to the Eastern side of the Sierras over to Bishop with his wife, Barbara. Um, so I would geek out on like, you know sort of biographies of these people, right? Like, how did they do it? And then I started calling people, um, just straight up cold calling people. Um, you know, I cold called Jimmy Chin and he took like an hour and we just wrapped, um, about process and getting going and, um, other landscape photographers, other adventure photographers. And, and for the most part, people were really generous with their time. And, uh, 
then you just sort of have to learn as you go. Um, I, I mean, I spent years working as a bartender for money mm-hmm. and shooting really unpaid on spec to create a portfolio to allow me to then get a job with a friend for a couple thousand dollars, which was heinous. Um, but that was a, that was the start, you know, and we got, you know, small little advertising job that ran a backpacker magazine. It's like awesome. Um, and was all that early stuff, climbing, adventure sports, mountain lifestyle. Like what, what did that? Yeah. I mean, I, I built out, um, a portfolio of images that ref- really was a reflection of who I was and the images that I digested as a teenager laying on the floor, um, uh, looking through climbing magazines in New Jersey, um, as well as just the lifestyle that I was living, which was being outside and being with those athletes. Um, I wasn't building them out. Like I, I don't build out like a commercial book of cars. Cause I don't really give a shit about cars. Right. And right. so like, so I was just sort of building out the imagery and going to the places that I wanted to go with friends, documenting adventures. And that's really how it started. Um, and then those images started selling and then those, uh, advertising jobs, um, started growing and growing. And then, um, in 2012, I got a, a voicemail. Um, I was living in Truckee, California at the time and, um, it was Corey Richards and, and I just got a voicemail. It's like, Hey Barden, just seeing if you want to go to Everest, we leave in <laughs> seven weeks. Give me a shout. Beep. You know? And so I, I was like, what, you know? And right. So I, I called him back and, um, he invited me to come on an expedition to Mount Everest with National Geographic and a bunch of, um, North face climbers. And, uh, and that for me was like sort of where preparation and, and luck met, I guess. Mm -hmm. Like I had spent enough time climbing and he actually called me because I'd shot something on the side of El Cap, a video yeah, that's what I was going to ask you, like how you how you guys knew each other. But. Well, we'd, we'd been on a, a climbing expedition to Peru together a couple years prior mm-hmm. um, down the Cordillera Blanca. And, you know, we'd, we'd been friends. We got on well. We shot um, way up on the South Wall, Alex Honnold, before he was Alex Honnold. We shot a advertising for Black Diamond together. And so we'd, we'd been in contact over the years. And then I shot this video on spec on the side of El Cap and I edited it and I put it together and I learned how to edit on whatever it was. I think it was Adobe Premiere. Yeah. And he saw that and was like, Hey, I need a, a videographer, a cinematographer, um, to come with me and help document this expedition. And so all the unpaid time, um, uh, that I put in, you know, led up to that moment. And I got to, to go on that expedition to the roof of the world. Was that the trip that got you hooked up with National Geographic or was that the later? Was that the like the shot where yeah. you, you're yeah, that, that looking was. through that ice cr- crevasse or whatever that you... Yep. So um, Corey ended up um, being evacuated from the, from the mountain about halfway through the expedition. There were a number of things that built up to the point that... Um, that he had to be evacuated for medical reasons. Uh-huh. And so then the photo editor, Sadie Quarrier, she actually had flown in that day or no, she hiked up actually. She'd flown into Kathmandu and then you get bumped to a little town and then you spend a couple of days hiking because it's so high in elevation. So she had hiked in that day. Um, and so we took Corey down in a sled and, uh, sort of assisted him through the Kumbu icefall, got him on a helicopter. He flew out to Kathmandu 
and and then after some debate um, amongst the team, the team captain decided that you know it wasn't safe for Corey to come back given the medical diagnosis of what they thought the condition was. Right. Um, and so then Sadie sort of looked at me and was like, "All right, you're up." Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Wait, did did Max Lowe come on that expedition? Did he end up there? Well, Max Max Lowe was there. Um, he, he was on a grant, I uh-huh. think, for a separate story. For I, well, the only reason I ask, I just had him on the show, and yeah. he was talking about, and he said uh-huh. Andy, and it just didn't. It just is just processing with me, like, oh, he's probably yeah. talking about you. So he was shooting a story. Uh, I think it was on Sherpa Culture um, for National Geographic Young Explorer Grant, and uh, and he had wrapped that up. Mm-hmm. Um, he'd come up to base camp and he hung out and said what's up to his. Um, to his father, Conrad Anchor, who was mm-hmm. on our trip. And then he went back to Kathmandu and Corey got evac'd, whole, long story short. So I just asked Conrad, I was like, hey, like, can we have Max come back and, and he can, you know, assist the rest of the trip, helping with metadata and dumping images and um, basically assisting to uh, to get the job done. Yeah. And uh, and they said, okay. And, and so he came back and then we we ended up shooting the rest of the, uh, of the story. Yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to like interrupt. I just, no. I started realizing like what expedition you were talking about as you were saying it. So, you know, how long were you there? Quite, quite a while. That was, yeah. 85 days. Wow. So, so I lost, um, I lost like 25 pounds. It was, it was pretty full on man. Yeah. In hindsight, I think I probably had some like, uh, I don't want to say PTSD, but it definitely like, beat me up more than I thought, uh, for like a while. How so? It was, it's, I oh, just physically and mentally, yeah. it's so taxing for so long and you're at such high altitude. Um, you're just drained for months afterwards, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I can't really imagine, but I, I assume that even like you said, mentally, there's gotta be plenty of moments where you're, you're thinking like, I, I think I just want to go home, <laughs> you know? And like, I know that's not an option, so I got to tough it out here, but. Yeah, no, it became a total like patience marathon that um, has prepared me for like a lot of other things in life, the yeah. situation included, um, of being really thankful for what we do have. And uh, it was, you know, being in a tent for 85 days and, negative 20 degree temperatures at night, um, eating spam and potatoes and, you know, it, it's just, it gives you perspective. Yeah. Um, and so I'm thankful for the experience. I don't want to repeat it. Um, but I'm glad I did it. Yeah. You know, it doesn't really sound like an experience I'm looking for right now, but, <laughs> but like during that period, how do you work past some of the self-talk as far as like, what am I doing here? And then even how do you go about like trying to, because obviously on an expedition like that, you're, you know, you have the, the restraints of like, this is what we're doing. These are the yeah. days we're going. And then how do you kind of find creative I mean, angles around that? I guess. You I know? mean, like. Sadie Courier, who is an amazing photo editor, was there. Um, and so we got to like sit and review images oh, and cool. like talk yeah. a lot mm-hmm. for a couple of weeks um, until she left. And then we were able to stay in touch via satellite communication. So there was always a feedback loop with the magazine as well mm-hmm. as Washington, D.C. Um, we were able to email images to D.C. and get feedback um, 
<clears throat> from a North, another editor who doesn't work there anymore uh, named Susan Welshman, who's a total spitfire. And she would just say straight up like, hey, you're blowing it. You need to get in there and get more details or you need to back off and show us more. Like she was very clear about what she felt would help build out the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, people were dying on the mountains. You're stepping over like the blood of people the day later that fell in crevasses that cannot be retrieved. And, yeah. and so it's it's heavy for that reason as well. Um, you know, the crowding and the human toll and there, there's challenges being on the mountain. Um, but the self-talk became uh, like, I think I was, I started to get good imagery that uh, Sadie was happy with. And knowing that we were getting stuff in the can, I think helped. Um, and ultimately, you know, they, they got what they needed and they ran the story and it was great. And um, I think the key takeaway for me was like setting a sustainable pace where you don't burn out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of am seeing this experience like with the whole COVID thing as a very similar mindset of like you do what you need to do so you don't burn out, dude. Right. If that means you don't do a podcast for a couple of days and you go outside with your son it's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, you're hearing like these self-help gurus, not to drop names, but some of them are like, well, you know, fucking so-and-so wrote uh, Shakespeare's play or like came up with the theory yeah. of relativity or gravity. Or, and you're like, dude, just, just chill. Yeah. You know, like I think, I think this is a stressful enough time for all of us um, with so many unknowns about, social distancing and our careers and the health of our families and maybe our parents and or friends who have gotten sick. I think the key is like to not burn out Mm -hmm. and to remain healthy and, and get in that marathon mindset of doing what you need to do and not beating yourself up as like you need to go full throttle every day because it's just not possible. Like Sundays are Tuesdays, Tuesdays are Fridays. Um, so I think just like, being in that endurance mode is like something that I'm able to like tap into right now. Yeah, man, I totally agree. And I'm like, I've, I've picked on some of those, those same people that you're talking about <laughs> on this yeah. show before, but I agree. Sometimes you're like, I get what you're saying. And it's great to like have that hustle mindset sometimes, but like you it said, is, but, sometimes but you just need to, to take care ago, of yourself. When you had that hustle mindset. You didn't, sit down with a cup of coffee, a stimulant, AKA a stressor uh-huh. <laughs> and open the New York times and just get like a deluge of anxiety creating right. heaviness, man. Right. Like I think that like there's literally like a physical toll that is, is occurring and a, and an anxiety related mental stressor mm-hmm. um, that we're putting on ourselves here, whether we acknowledge it or not. Some people are, you know, super healthy and in a good, good mode and they still have work and other people are in small apartments, um, have a hard time getting access to, you know, good quality foods. Maybe you're drinking too much. Um, maybe feel really alone. Uh, you know, and so I I think the key is just like, and I'm not an expert. I don't know, like all these mindfulness techniques that people are coming out, um, with, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert. I, I just, I do know that it's okay to do what you need to do. So you don't burn out. Totally agree. Totally agree. Well, so 
continue with your story. You do the expedition. That was a cover story, right? I mean, that was that that sh- yeah that crevasse shot was the cover. Mm-hmm. What inspired that shot? Even what made you come up with that idea? Um, you were like I in mean, the crevasse, right? Yeah, so I rappelled down into a crevasse to shoot up at um, Hillary O'Neill or Hillary Nelson walking across a ladder with her headlamp on. Mm-hmm. Um, it it was one of many shots that I thought it would be cool if I tried it, and I tried it, and it worked out. Right. Um, and yeah, it just the orientation worked, the negative space worked. Um, the fact that it was vertical worked, uh, for like the title and the border and like whatever it may be. Um, and I think I also shot it wide enough that you're able to see deep enough into the crevasse that it's like a truly dangerous scenario. And I think that that, you know, and being at dark, it was sort of like, um, with her headlamp on, it just felt dangerous it felt exposed yeah uh, it's beautiful man i love that shot yeah did you but like how does that work kind of when you're in once again and granted you know you're with nat geo so obviously you've got enough pull to say this is really what i want to do but when you're in a expedition yeah, situation so, like that and you're like hold up i want to repel <clears> into no. this yeah so like that's the deal though with nat geo is that you can't like you can't like change reality right you know, and so like there aren't like pose downs going on. Yeah. Like she's really crossing the ladder mm-hmm. and we're really on like, you know, the push to, to climb the mountain. And so it's a matter of getting into position and being prepared to be in the place to make the frame. Um, it's not like a commercial shoot where you're like, oh, go back and do it again. Or, like, <laughs> yeah. There's uh-huh. assistance or people behind you like helping with like lights or strobes. I mean, it's it's. You know, when you're, when you're working for them, it's photojournalism, mm-hmm. um, and you turn in every single frame you shoot. And so you literally send them a hard drive with, um, every single image. And so they'll look at your frames both before and after their selected images to make sure that like the scene's not manipulated and that there's no Photoshop. And, um, as a result of someone faking some stuff years and years and years ago, they've been like really disciplined about maintaining that journalistic integrity um for photojournalists and i think that's really important yeah so did you just was it something like you thought this is what i want to do and i'm going to get input into position and i'll just be there when they cross it yeah and i so i went ahead yeah and then um placed ice screw and used this really sketchy kind of uh boat rope from korea to rappel down into the crevasse um yeah, it's it's dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'm just curious on how it came about. Yeah, yeah. So from there, was it kind of, I mean, obviously, once again, I know enough from my own career and just talking to tons of people on this show, they're all small stepping stones in the long run in hindsight to it all. But did it feel like things that was a, a giant jumping off point as far as that expedition, that story? Sure. Yeah. yeah, 100%. I mean, I, I that was... You know, I'd quit a job uh, a couple days a week working as a bartender Mm -hmm. to go on that expedition. And upon going on that expedition and returning, um, I was then able to not take another job up until uh, this self-started tequila thing, um, aside from photography or directing or cinematography. So it was definitely a springboard um, for 
I would say not for like a bunch more editorial assignments, but it was a springboard for legitimacy. Of course. When, when either reaching out to clients um, or whatever, you know, it was it was definitely a pivotal spot in my career. And and I look back now in my late thirties and like my risk tolerance is changing. And I don't want to be hanging off of a rope and a crevasse on Korean boat rope anymore, you know. And uh-huh. so, um, and fortunately, you know, my my um, assignments have changed, and the commercial work has come in um, in different ways, and not necessarily just doing climbing stuff. Um, but yeah, it was for sure a pivotal um, stage in my career, and you know, those relationships. Um, are are deep that you have with those team members where you know if i like years later saw sam elias um who's a climber for the north face he was also on that expedition uh we shot some work in spain together and you know it was like we just picked up where we left off um or a couple years after that emily harrington and i um you know we're rock climbing in the sierras and we're just chit-chatting like you know like nothing's changed you know you just create these deep bonds with people that um, I really cherish and those relationships have been really, really rewarding. Yeah. It's that brotherhood and, and sisterhood of really going through some shit together. Yeah. I mean, it's not like being in the service, that's for sure. Or being a war photographer, or, um, you know, being a member of the military, but you know, Nietzsche has a quote that the fastest way to fraternization is through physical exertion. Yeah. Um, and I believe that, you know, that camaraderie that you have and specifically with the risk taking and the trust, um, you know, I'm tied together. Sam and I are tied together. We're tent mates um, at over 20,000 feet. I'm boiling water and he's shoveling the tent. And, you know, that that does create a, a very unique brotherhood where you look each other in the eye and you have unspoken trust. Um, you know, it's, it's a really cool relationship. Well, and to have like that history as far as, that being the early days of, of forming your career as a photographer and a director and a filmmaker, then when the commercial work comes, like, look, man, there's no stress like what you're just talking about. So it's easy to stay a little calmer and, and handle. I know at least for myself, like I've had enough early experiences in my life, much like that, that, that were real stresses that on a commercial set, when the AD or somebody's freaking out, I'm like, you know, it's okay, yeah. man. We, I got this. It's all good. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, your job, you know, fast forward a couple of years, um, things are going to go wrong and your job is to figure out, um, how to deal with those specifically as a director. Yeah. Um, you know, there's 30 people on set looking at you to make decisions. Um, you better, you know, be able to detach a little bit, look around, observe what's going on and make cool, calm decisions and not freak out. Right. Um, you know, otherwise you're, you're not going to be there for long. But don't you think because of some of those actual oh, life sure. and death experiences, you're, yeah. it's easy to go, well, I'm not going to die with this one. <laughs> you know, it's perspective. Absolutely. Yeah. It yeah. Gives you perspective. So like, as you continue to evolve and grow, like where did, because you've done, you know, a ton in the world of, as a director, and as a still photographer, so when did that real branch? Because you, you know, you said even at on that expedition, you came in as as a videographer. So was it always pretty balanced? And then how did it continue well, to branch? I out? mean, I think the media, like you know, these devices that we carry around in our pockets, changed 
sort of photography permanently for most of us. Mm -hmm. Um, I know very few just still photographers. Most people are also doing some motion. Yep. Um, and so it just, it was that, that was a decision early on when the 5d Mark II came out, uh, Vincent LaFerre released a film called reverie where, you know, it was just to show how sweet this low light DSLR was. Um, and I had a 5d Mark II, And so I just flipped it over to video mode and was like, all right, well, let's jump in and figure this out. Um, and for me, I think a lot of the same aesthetics and, um, and skill set applies in terms of filling the frame with interesting things and, being conscious of, um, you know, your depth of field and, and all of those little like geeky technical things, like they're kind of the same. Um, now storytelling, uh, on video is different, but I think having, having the background, a solid background as a still photographer, then flipping it to video, I think that was an easier transition than maybe going the other way. Meaning, meaning you're a videographer and then you pick up a still camera that might be a little bit harder. Um, but that was just a decision early on. And, and I saw the, the world, um, online going heavy into video and as technology got better, as streaming services got better, um, it it was just going to continue. And that's been the case. Um, and so I enjoy them both. I I definitely have a soft spot for stills for sure. Now still, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, having a single camera and a single lens is like a total treat after traveling with like 14 Pelican cases to shoot an assignment on like a red camera with a movie and a drone yeah. and a hel- or a real helicopter, you know? And, um, I love the simplicity of just, you know, an old film camera and shooting portraits of a friend. Um, I still really enjoy that. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. What brought you back to Jackson eventually? Um, the community, Yeah. Uh, you know, I was just, I, I was bouncing around for a while and, and traveling and climbing and, um, I think for me, it was the the close proximity to nature, um, multiple national parks or, you know, just down the road from us and, uh, and the community for sure. Just, just quality people and recognizing that, um, you know, I, I say this like referencing earlier, having a sense of purpose, whether it's playing violin or, uh, shooting photos or whatever it may be getting better at something is one of the components of happiness enduring relationships are another component of happiness for human beings. Um, and I recognize that, you know, in whatever it was, 2007 or eight. And, uh, and so after ping ponging around, um, made the point of, of trying to be around and to connect with those friends. And, you know, now they're a lot of my friends are married with kids and, you know, we've been friends since 2003, 2004. Um, and those are, you know, really deep bonds that I'm so thankful to have. Yeah. I think, you know, going back to COVID, I think that's another silver lining. I I hope that it makes people, you know, really appreciate the simplicity of just community and relationships, you know, when it's all stripped away like that and all you can do is have digital conversations like we're having it, it really makes you kind of long for and appreciate a lot of uh, very simple pleasures that we tend to overlook on a daily basis. Yeah, for sure. And just knowing that there are people 10 years, 15 years later, um, that you have deep history with, um, I, I look forward to also laughing with them in 10 or 15 more years and, and looking back at this time and having worked through it together. And it's another chapter in the book that we're writing, you know, um, 
So yeah, it's just, it feels like home for me. I love it here. Yeah. I did want to talk a little bit. I saw something, I can't, I can't remember the name of it now. It's like the art group or something like that. And Oh, the art lab, the, the art, art lab. lab. Thank you. Uh-huh. That's what I, yeah. I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. Cause it looked like, you know, you had gone through some moments of like plenty of other creative pursuits, whether throwing pottery, it looked like maybe you were wheat pasting some big prints or something. And so I was curious yeah. about, about that. Yeah. I felt like I wanted to pursue, you know, creativity in other ways and not just the photographic medium. And so I did, um, you know, I went and did some figure drawing, um, just of the human form. And I I tried wheat pacing and then I tried painting on top of my own images, like printing them off on even just cheap, like, um, what's it called? Like architectural paper, blueprint paper, Uh printing them really, really big and then taking charcoal and painting on top of them. Um, and I found that I was able to open up a whole other world of, of creativity using my images as a base and then building upon it with layers of other things, uh, epoxy resins and, uh, paint brushes and sponges and all sorts of stuff. Um, image transfers, which were super cool. Um, and after about eight months or a year, um, if I was going to pursue that further, uh, and, and do it like for work, I recognized it was going to be years of time alone in a studio um, perfecting my craft before it was good enough to be available, um, to be like sold, you know? And I had spent years alone in front of a computer as a photographer. Right. And I recognized that, um, I was going to put that on hold for now and I was going to pursue other things. Uh, and so I'm, I'm not currently pursuing like three dimensional art and painting and drawing at Mm -hmm. this moment. Um, but I will down the road and I'm okay with like dipping into that and trying and recognizing similar to like maybe fly fishing for me Right. that I'll, I'll do it later. But like for me right now, it's just not something that is filling my well. And while I'm curious about it, I'm not curious enough about it to put years of work and effort in at this moment. Um, I'm sure I'll revisit it later. You know, the, the building of a brand, the building of a business has, I'm almost like two years into this now. And like, I can't explain. It doesn't feel like work, which is a weird thing to say because it's been a lot of work, Mm -hmm. but it hasn't felt like work. And it's been surprisingly creative, um, making something of nothing or making something from nothing. And then working with people who are also deeply passionate about, um, either the spirit or their land or the plant or the branding um, has, has been really fun. And I think after working as a photographer, like solo for so long, um, that's scratched an itch and filled a well that I guess I didn't know I needed. Yeah. Do you think, cause my next question was going to be, and maybe, and maybe that what you're talking about is part of it, but like where you draw the most inspiration from, you know, to want to move forward, to want to create, maybe it's those personal relationships you're talking about as you push forward with business. But I'm, I'm curious, like where you, where you pull from when your well does kind of feel empty. It's a hundred percent nature. Yeah. Like 100%, like without question, that's my answer. 110%. Mm-hmm. Um, the natural world to me is, um, the best way to receive humility and a reset and 
perspective. Um, like there's a Calvin and Hobbes comic that, you know, they're looking up at the stars and just saying like, you know, I wonder how people would live their lives differently if they stopped and looked at the stars every night. And like when I walk my dogs, um, I have a red tailed hawk fly over my head or the stars are out or we go down to the river and you look at all these little microorganisms on the side of the river. I mean, the complexity and the perfection of the natural world for me is always the master uh, teacher, if you're willing to listen. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. I mean, totally agree, man. Cause it's like you said, if you're open to that teaching, it's so humbling because you realize your place in, in all of it. And it's, it's very minute. <laughs> and you know, we all do it differently, but for me, like I, you know, I leave like the headphones at home. I leave the phone at home. Sometimes it often, I leave the camera at home, um, and just try to reconnect. I mean, I think that's the, the, the joy of surfing for me is, is um being so present mm-hmm. with the natural world and being so connected um where consequences are so immediate and you're so in tune um and you have this heightened sense of awareness it's just it's incredible yeah yeah there's something about surfing in the water i'm with you you know plus you're just floating on top of this this whole other world, this alien world that we know so little about, you know, and we know so little about it. It's amazing. Yeah. I just did, I actually did a podcast with Brian scary. If you haven't had him on your show, man, that guy, like he will blow your mind okay. about how little we know about the ocean. Yeah. Less than space. Right. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah it's insane. it is. And there's, there's an energy there. Once again, I think if you're open to it, that, I mean, man, I'm content to just sit on the shoulder most of the time and, and float there most of the time. No, 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 no. You got to get in there. (laughs) I do get in there, but, but I'm just saying, you know, whether I catch a wave or not, there is something about just being in the water like that, you know? Uh, Yeah. And again, I think just like the simple recognition that you're a part of the natural world, um, I guess is what I'm getting at. And that, you know, all these decisions that we're, uh, living with now, um, I, I think this is maybe the first time in human history that we're recognizing that we're all connected. Yeah. Um, and I hope that we can maintain that mindset as we move forward and also recognize that we're also part of the natural world. And, you know, we're looking at pollution or the protection of oceans or whatever it may be. Um, these are collective, um, things that we need to chip away at. And that comes with, I think, you know, the awareness and the consciousness that we're, we're a part of the natural world. We're not apart from it. Totally. Yeah. Do you ever get burned out? And if so, like, how do you deal with it it, when it, when it strikes? Um, burned out in what sense? I'm certainly never bored. Never. I guess, you know, it seems like you have enough pursuits that it probably keeps you, but you know, I think inevitably as creatives, we hit walls sometimes where we think, God, I feel like I'm, I'm doing things over and over again, you know? And then, and it causes a burnout sometimes. Sometimes I think, and you talked about it earlier, if you chase enough personal projects and you're really looking for passions, you will continue to reinvent yourself naturally. But I think inevitably sometimes we face points because even dream jobs become jobs at, at some point. So I guess I, I view it slightly differently where um, I follow my curiosities mm-hmm. And if I'm not curious about something anymore, I don't judge that. 
And I think your label of burnout is like your judgment of not being interested in something anymore. And I think I'm able to just let go a little bit and like with painting, Mm -hmm. um, I'll come back to it. Or if I'm not feeling it with photography, um, then I won't bring my camera out. Yeah. Um, but I think that like I can always find inspiration for sure um, from the natural world. And and then I'm just pursuing my curiosities, uh, whether it's brand building, which I'm doing now, um, or other things that like that prevents burnout because it's a new stimulus. Mm-hmm. And that new stimulus um, is replacing whether it's the repetition of going on commercial shoots or uh, – going on shoots that pay nothing but matter a lot and you're just over it because the editorial world isn't there just isn't money there anymore mm-hmm. um, like there used to be um i just try to then redirect and not judge that redirection but simply like zoom out like we're saying and observe it and i think just that simple process of stepping back and observing it without judgment uh disempowers that feeling of burnout like a lot Man, I love that. And it's so, and it's funny because I'm a long time meditator as people get sick of me talking about on the show and literally did like a a shorts episode not very long ago, trying to kind of help people along the the path of mindfulness and stuff and gave those same kind of directions as far as, (laughs) you know, letting go of this judgment when you do start spinning out or thinking, you know, uh, and it makes so much sense to approach your creative pursuits like that too. Cause you're right. You know, there, there are plenty of times where you just got to go. Yeah. It's okay that I don't like this thing anymore. Yeah. That's evolution. Yeah. That's why I believe that's why we're actually here. That's like our purpose as humans. Like what is life's meaning? I think life's meaning is to evolve and to pass on our knowledge and, and then to die ultimately. And so I'm not judging the evolution of letting go of things because none of it's going to last forever anyway. So get over that idea. Um, And then after like having some hiccups, like in terms of being injured and stuff like that, um, I I know that that career I had as a 22 year old won't be possible at 49 in the same way that it was. I'll still be able to do it. It's just going to be different. Um, So yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to remain a, a student and, I think finding new stimuluses um, is the best way I've found to prevent burnout. That's great. All right, man. Well, last question. I always end the show the same way, although I know you've answered this question before. Closing words of wisdom, advice you give to others. doesn't necessarily have to be photographers or filmmakers, but you know, people that are out there chasing their passions. I mean, there is no one right way of doing things. And so I think some form of self-awareness is required to answer this question for everybody. And I think the recognition that, you know, your unique interests and curiosities are just that. Um, And accepting that there will be judgment of others regardless of the path you choose um, should be a freeing enough recognition that you ought to just pursue what it is that you're most curious about because that'll give you the most reward. I, I guess as we talked about earlier, I think to reference Rodney Mullen again, that I firmly believe his quote that the greatest obstacle to creativity is your own personal barrier of disbelief. Mm -hmm. And once that sinks in and you're able to recognize that our self-induced sort of 
limitations aren't necessarily true, um, it becomes a very freeing thing. Well, that that will allow you to to be significantly more successful in whatever arena you choose and believe to participate in. That's at least had the most impact on my life. And you know, if that inspires somebody else to to pick up a pen or to uh, you know pick up a camera, or take a trip, or do whatever it is um, after this whole COVID thing changes, then then I think that's worth sharing. I love it. It's a great place to leave it, Andy. I'm a fan, man, and uh, I look forward to you know seeing what else you do, seeing what comes of the the spirits company. That's exciting, but I think you got a, an inspiring attitude and and obviously a, a great body of work. So I appreciate you taking time to talk. Well, thanks, brother, and I hope uh, we can overlap at some point this summer, early autumn, either in Wyoming or Colorado. Take care, Rick. Cool. You too. All right, there you go. What do you think? See what I'm saying about the positivity? As a student of Buddhism, you'd think I'd be well-versed in applying the uh, principles of accepting the impermanence of everything, but sometimes I need to be reminded. And he threw out a great reminder of that when I asked him about burnout. So once again, make sure to check out all the links in the show notes. Give him a follow on Instagram. Check out his podcast, Wild Common. Stay tuned for more information on the tequila company. And stay safe, healthy, and happy out there. That's it for another episode of the Visual Revolutionary Podcast. Thank you for listening, for being fans of the show. Thank you for some of these great messages that have been coming in lately. It means a lot, everyone. Several people even reached into their pockets during a time when I know we're all stressed about money and donated to the show. I sent you emails, but thank you. But mostly just a big shout out to all of you listening right now for letting me take up your space, for letting me be in your ears for an hour and a half or so. Hopefully it's brought you some kind of entertainment and inspiration. All right, I'll stop talking. I'll be back soon with another episode. Until then, I'm out. Peace. Revolution.